kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 455. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today I've got two just rabid cinephiles who have never been on an episode of Wrong Real together. I'm pretty sure y'all have collaborated in the past on other podcasts, but we've got the great Dave Eves and Martin Kessler, and we're going to be talking about Valerian Borovchik, if I'm saying that <laughs> correctly. But guys, <laughs> welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you for thinking of both of us when you had only seen The Beast before. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just, can, can I just say real quick, Martin, not to cut your introduction short, that James and I, after talking about Carl Theodore Dreyer films, I don't know how it popped into his head, but he was just thinking of The Beast and said, that'd be great. Dave, you should do it. Let's get Martin in here too. So, Well, I, I think Borovchik came up, uh, something we, we did a while ago, maybe it was the Jodorowsky podcast or Zhuovsky or uh, Marcel Yankovic, one of those episodes where we, like, I hadn't seen very much Borovchik, so I sort of danced around that, but uh, the name definitely came up as a recommendation at a few points, so I'm glad to be on here for this. Well, anytime I see an Eastern European name of any kind, I'm like, oh, of course, Martin Kessler. He, he, he's my go-to guy. But also because Martin Kessler in the past has shown a, uh, you know, a capacity for being broad-minded when it comes to certain topics. One of our earliest episodes we did together was our uh, erotic science fiction film episode. That's true. Which I haven't listened to in fucking years, but I was like, all right, so anytime we're going to be talking about bestiality or women bathing in blood <laughs> or anything like that, Martin Kessler is my guy. But Dave, I guess it just shows my how what a high opinion I have of you that I sought to include you in this conversation as well. Well, well thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you think of none, no one else when you think of uh, giant monster penises. <laughs> but maybe for people out there who, first, before we get to any of that craziness because this this episode is going to completely fly off the rails every time we mention anything in any of these movies let's give a proper introduction to both of you guys mr eves what have you been working on lately in the wonderful world of podcasting it sounds like you and the 25th frame guys have been uh putting a lot of things in the oven yeah 25th frame has been crazy busy lately i myself am not uh 
as active as some of the other people. We've added a lot of great new shows to the overall channel. We have Just the Discs with Brian Sauer. We have Magnificent Obsession with Alicia Malone, who, as anyone can remember, was the host of Filmstruck, Rest in Peace. We also did just add a couple new shows. One is called Film Shake, and another is Drinking While Talking, hosted by Jill Blake. Um, and I actually don't know who her co-host is in that right now, which makes this great airtime. But um, all these shows are fantastic. Please listen to all of them. Please support this growing network of podcasts. They're all film-related. Uh, we're trying our best to get as many different opinions and as many different uh, voices out there so that anyone can, t- can, can really log in uh, and hear people just talking about great movies. This is definitely a great network. Without giving any numbers, are you aware of to what degree Alicia Malone's traffic compares to the other channels? Because I imagine Alicia Malone, if people don't know, Alicia Malone is like a, like the Marilyn Monroe of like film criticism and film analysis. There are a lot of lonely film lovers out there who have just intense, passionate crushes on Alicia Malone. <laughs> and I imagine her podcast is absolutely kicking ass. I, I think Aaron West is, is keeping those kinds of numbers pretty close to the chest, and that, that's fair. Um, so definitely that would be a question for him, but I, I have to assume that everyone's doing doing great because we have, we have so many great shows on the network. Yeah, I saw a video essay by her one time about Jean-Pierre Melville where I was like, oh, all right, this girl, she's like, a real fucking cinephile. And then I started following her, and she, she's awesome. I'm a huge fan. Well, Mr. Kessler, what have you been up to as of late? I'm still over at uh, FlixWise. Uh, lots of FlixWise Canada episodes coming out lately. I know last time you had Amanda on the podcast, she sort of teased one, and we uh, did a podcast on Pompoco, which was really fun. Also recently had uh, Marcus Pin, I'm sure people know, on to talk about... Upgrade, the uh, Blumhouse sci-fi action movie, which was really uh, fantastic. The the good version of Venom. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And uh, most recently, we had an episode with uh, Tony Stella talking about Kon Ichikawa's Revenge of a Kabuki actor, which was fantastic. Tony Stella, I'm sure people know, is just like a cinephile cinephile. And um, also, just on the regular FlixWise show, there's... um, episode I was on talking about Salo or the 120 Days of Sodom, which might be a good episode for people to check out if they enjoy this conversation that I think we're going to have. I don't know if they belong in the same family because I think on some level at least people will find Valerian Barovchik's films titillating to a degree, but when I watch Salo, it is like a bucket of ice being poured <laughs> right in my lap. So for me, I get a very different experience from watching Silo. But I guess if you watch Silo and it's a turn on, well, that's another conversation. Entirely. If you like boundary pushing, uh, transgressive cinema that deals with sexuality, maybe maybe you'll enjoy both uh, in a in a certain perspective. And uh, lots coming out. I've got an episode coming up soon where uh, I talk about two films about a by a filmmaker from Chad, and uh, I've got an article I've been working on for a little while now for The Pink Smoke, which should be uh, really interesting, and lots of guest spots, lots of stuff along the way, so I'll be No one has ever asked me to contribute an essay to any website ever, and I guess people are starting to... 
I guess people are operating the assumption that I'm completely illiterate, but I am capable of putting <laughs> fingers to a keyboard and writing something vaguely resembling complete sentences. So I'm just putting it out there. If anybody wants some essays, I occasionally have been known to uh, fire off some. My top 10 erotic horror films post last time I checked, which was a couple months ago, had like 140,000 views as a written post, which is definitely my most popular written post I've ever done. So. People love the list format for whatever reason. Oh, people yeah. like stuff ordered into lists. I would read an essay by you if you write anything let me know I'll, I'll read that for sure yeah well i'll definitely be writing all about my uh, my trauma and uh, horror after we are finished uh, discussing this episode because these films take us into some strange verboten territory but let's talk a little bit about the beginning of his career because i feel like valerian bravchik at the beginning was quite a different filmmaker like in the 70s you had a lot of changing laws, and it seems like a lot of enterprising producers sought to exploit those changing laws to create these titillating kind of softcore sleaze combos. And it's a weird time in European uh, film culture where suddenly films like Emmanuel were making vast sums of money. And obviously, if something makes money, then a lot of people are going to try and jump on the trend. But early on, he was quite a different guy and doing this really groundbreaking, innovative, like short films and experimental animated films. So Dave, what can you tell us about Valerian's early days as a director? Who he, th- this is such a hard filmmaker to really pin down because he's gone through so many changes, so many different styles of filmmaking. Uh, obviously, this is a this is a person that's been steeped in art since the beginning. Uh, I mean, he studied painting and uh, lithography. He moved into animation of all sorts. He's doing stop motion. He's doing live action. He's doing hand-drawn animation. Um, I've not been able to watch as many of his early short films as I'd like to. I know that there are collections that are out there. And that's certainly, if, if anything, this, this uh, research for this podcast has done more peaking of my interest for this filmmaker than I really thought it would because especially when you th- when you when you see his his normal perception of what he does of what he is when you look at things like immoral tales and the beast that is really just scratching the surface of everything this man has accomplished as a filmmaker and uh, I I think this has really just been a great little journey into seeing more of what this person has to offer and a, a great voice that maybe did not get as the attention that it deserved through its through his his uh, maligned perception. What was the catalyst that got people so interested in him again? Because if, like, like, like you mentioned, there are so many box sets out there now collecting his shorts and so many box sets collecting his more provocative films from the 70s. But, I mean, as a young film fanatic in the 90s, I never heard this guy's name. I just accidentally kind of tripped over the DVD of The Beast at a cinephile video, which is right next to the New Art in L.A., took it home, watched it, was thrown by the experience, to say the least. But I never felt the like compelled to explore more of his films. But it seems like in the last couple of years, there's been this giant resurgence of interest in his career. Uh, definitely. I think a lot of that comes down to Daniel Bird, who's uh, worked with Arrow also for... Um getting the releases for the Alexi German films and stuff like that. He's basically just you know, championed Barovchek kind of continuously for the last couple of years. So I, I think, you know, it's a case where you can almost attribute it all to one person who said, hey, this filmmaker is of value. I'm going to try to work to increase his reputation and get people to notice and restore his films and put together special features. Like a lot of it is just sort of the tireless work of Daniel Bird, I think, 
Well, it's well worth it. And I mean, one of the biggest gems that I saw as a result of y'all at, at y'all's urgings was this early short film, which the English translation is The Games of Angels. But it's a 1964 short film. And Terry Gilliam, who's no slouch in the animation department, described it as one of his top 10 animated films that he has ever seen. And it's quite different from the, the main films we're going to be discussing. But since you guys were the ones who recommended it to me, Dave, tell people a little bit about this film because it's quite remarkable and it's readily available on YouTube. I do wish the quality was a little bit higher of the YouTube uh, transfer. Typically, when you're getting films like this that are probably pirated, there, um, they're they're in the lowest resolution possible. But this is a film about concentration camps. It's literally a factory that makes angels, and it does so in the most disturbing Eastern European way imaginable. It's it's cut paper animation. These little drawn things that flop around on the screen that uh, fall out of bizarre pipes and you you yourself feel trapped there you, you start out on a train that's moving towards this concentration camp uh and then you literally see people and angels being dismembered and being assembled into grotesque shapes and figures that fight and flop around and it's it's horrifying like you literally even if you aren't fully sure of what you're seeing it takes a second to really kind of connect the dots the entire time you're kind of in a horrific glare of trying to understand what you're seeing and you just know whatever it is is bad and it, it does say something at the very beginning that um some of the music or maybe some of the basis of it is based on chants from the concentration camps so you know that you're seeing something heavy and you know that it's coming from a place of pain and suffering as well is he old enough to have experienced the holocaust firsthand i'm embarrassed to admit, i don't even know when he was born but obviously being from He's Polish, he born in the 1920s. Uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so he definitely yeah. was old enough to experience the, the horrors of Warsaw, etc. firsthand. Well, I, I thought the film absolutely was astonishing, but what I really liked was the uh, the score by Bernard Permagiani. But I liked also how you had a lot of great like POV shots of like food being fed through slots and things like that. Mm-hmm. So initially, I didn't quite know what I was looking at, but when I saw the slots and the food, I was like, oh, so it's kind of like a, a prison cell. And then, so, But I feel like whether you want to make it as... Like describe it as a parallel for Stalinism or for the uh, the Holocaust. 
it's uh, it's a quite a remarkable short, and obviously takes you to very strange, dark places that uh, seems qu- it's almost like totally unrecognizable compared to this film well, from the 1970s. I mean, like but he does uh, kind of come back to it. Like if you, I watched this short from the 80s, uh, Scherzo Infernal, which is a little bit more erotic, but his 1984 short, I, I, I wish he, um, or maybe I should just say, I wish I've seen more of his shorts because. In the world of animation, we just uh, we don't have as many unique voices like this as as we should. I mean, you really see his fine art background on display in his animated shorts, particularly that one. It's um, I, I know he also worked as a poster designer. So for like a lot of people who look at the uh, sort of unusual representative uh, Polish film poster art that you see shared around on Twitter all the time, like it kind of feels mm-hmm. like one of those come to life, and it has that sort of way of abstracting something that um, you, you can feel it coming from that tr- tradition and he just animates it puts it to motion and uh, like a lot of his shorts you could definitely see the impact of on uh, Terry Gilliam but he, at one time he was considered one of the most important animators out there he made many many short films and I think his transition to uh, live action filmmaking was sort of gradual like he started doing live action shorts in between his animation shorts and um his first feature film was uh, completely animated. It's his only feature-length animated film, but uh, the Mr. and Mrs. Cabal's Theater, it's, um, it has a look like it's very sort of sketchy. It's almost like, um, or not sketchy, but like very, very simple line drawing type stuff. It feels a little bit like like graffiti art or like, uh, you know, like a Basquiat painting kind of come to life. And it's about this sort of unusual couple and he'll like include little snippets of live action here and there like the mr cabal's peeping on some women and it'll cut to live action women sitting on the beach and that sort of thing so it's like he kind of slid into the live action filmmaking i think and even in the live action you can kind of see his background as a illustrator as an animator you know like his uh, film uh, or like his his early films, Goto and uh, Blanche, they have this really sort of flat style where he'll shoot against like a flat wall and people kind of move back and forward on one plane. It's a little bit like uh, Color of Pomegranates kind of a look to it or okay. feel to it, you know, but like it, it definitely feels like an animator's idea of like how to move actors. And I heard that like over the course of his career, some some actors could be a little bit frustrated working with him because he would direct them as if they were props a little bit like, like pieces of you paper move here you bend down you pick this up like you know not everyone likes being directed that way but i i think they don't like you know regarded kind of as see meat that. puppets <laughs> sure he, he's somebody who really does love his uh puppets i guess well, he, he's he's I, I think he he very much fits into the definition of like a mixed media artist no mm-hmm. matter what he's working with he's treating it like animation that's even something he says he, he says like oh the only difference between uh, a live action film and an animated film is, is what you're working with. It. Mm-hmm. Like, it used to be called animated photography. It's just 24 frames a second of, of pictures. So he, he clearly doesn't really see the distinction. It's just how he chooses to represent himself. He he didn't say, like, oh, I'm going to make this with... Uh, with, with I'm going to draw this one. I'm going to use puppets right. for this one. I'm going to use meat puppets for this one. I mean, people. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just whatever he felt like worked best for the story he was trying yeah. to tell. So in those early features, is there any indication or any hint of the the wild movies to come because obviously it seems like from immoral tales in 1973 forward and well into the, like toward the end of his career with movies like Emmanuel 5 he would always kind of like be tap t- tap dancing around these erotic topics but I haven't seen these early features is there any indication about um what's to come very minor like there's a little bit of 
like there's a shower scene in Goto where there's like a little bit of, uh, you know, dealing with sexuality and objectification and blush, but it's more like, uh, and it sort of makes me think like if people saw Bergman's uh, Summer with Monica and they're like, oh, he's that guy who makes the erotic films, make us another erotic film, Bergman, and like Bergman somehow got pigeonholed into doing like an Emmanuel sequel, like gotcha. it almost feels like that, like how, wait, well what, how do you get from here to here? Like I think he always had... Uh, you know, an interest in sexuality and obviously explores it in different facets and, you know, has like a long career, long interest in it. But it feels like just one aspect of somebody who was a very uh, rounded filmmaker that people just kind of picked up on and sort of expected from him. Well, you can totally get trapped. Like in the 70s, just those, like the same video store that I mentioned before, Cinephile, they had a section just described as Euro sleaze, and they're not porn, <laughs> they're, not, they're not pornography, but they're not bourbon. They're in this weird, hazy gray area. And like, as Dave said on Twitter, he's like, well, can't they be both? Can't they be art and yes. porn? But I don't know if I would describe his films as porn because there's so much more going on. I feel like for me, porn yeah, is just pure. Yeah. It's just, it's all about... Like, there's infanticide in his films, there's shocking stuff. Like, I think the fact that he deals with sort of explicit sexuality, that's only part of what most of these films are until maybe you get to Emmanuel 5 in which case yeah it's like basically porn but you know for a long time I think the films that people kind of described as pornographic aren't really I you know in Vorovchik always kind of refuted that no my films are not porn like that you know there's there, um, there, there's other aspects to them there's other things going on um, you know you, you wouldn't uh, like there's this interview where the interviewer calls him a pervert and he's like everyone's a pervert like if i was making a film about drug addicts you wouldn't assume i was a drug addict it's like this is just the subject i'm interested in but i, I think like because of the attitudes towards sexuality in films it's really easy to kind of slip into that uh like hey you're stuck doing erotic films for especially ever, if basically money like i mean oh, obviously, yeah if you're getting offered gigs to adapt certain books or to do whatever <laughs> sure it's very easy to get pigeonholed as the erotic guy if you've just established a successful track record so producers are going to be offering you his first uh, his first couple films were not commercial successes i think like especially blanche he had like a personal financial investment in and it lost money so it hit him kind of hard and then he got an offer to do immoral tales uh, I think it was maybe the same producer who did, like, In the Realm of the Senses. They sort of worked with, okay, we're going to take an established auteur and kind of, you know, now that censorship's kind of gone away, we can do something that pushes the boundaries of uh, sexuality. And, you know, like, his uh, experience in making short films that like you can really see in Immoral Tales, where he's kind of just doing a bunch of short films and stringing yeah, them together. Vignettes. And that was his biggest 
box office hit at the time that was like a huge hit and i think because that was the one where he really sort of you know went head forward like you know went directly into the sexual themes that kind of became the rest of his career in a way i I think like that's where he found his success that's where people actually responded to but like i remember yodorowsky talking about his falling out with rolando klein where after the holy mountain uh klein wanted him to do the story of O, which is like similar to Emmanuel, it's like an erotic film, and Yudorowsky turned him down and went off to try to make uh, Dune instead, and for years Rolando Klein wouldn't give up the rights to Yodorowsky's early films, which is why they were always bootlegged, but I think like, you know, it's sort of easy to imagine somebody doing one film like that, it makes a ton of money, and you never make anything but that, so I think that's a little bit maybe what happened with Borovchek, is he sort of found success with this sort of uh, sexually explicit subjects and that kind of, you know, it's something he fell into, basically. Well, I'm sure he cried all the way to the bank. Well, let's start digging <laughs> well, into the moral tales. I mean, the moral tales, is, I feel like, it's, for me, it's a mixed he's bag. He's not somebody I, who I, worked I like some like, the to shorts. the end of his career, though. Like, it, like his career as a filmmaker ended. He had to go back to uh, working as an illustrator and, uh, you know, wrote books and stuff like that because people wouldn't fund his films anymore. He tried to make a film about Nefertiti. Nobody wanted to fund it. He tried to do uh, a Terrence Stamp and Kate Bush film, and people said, well, like, you know, you're that pornographer. We're not going to give you money. Like, the only thing people wanted to uh, finance, basically, at the end of his career was, like, late-night French TV erotica. And I I think, you know, that for him as an artist was maybe dissatisfying. It's kind of like the Tinto brass route. (laughs) Sure. Well, Dave, for people who don't know what the hell we're talking about, set the stage for Immortal Tales. Because uh, okay, obviously this movie, is, it's, you, there's a bunch of different ways to come at it, but obviously it's a, a series of short films or a series of vignettes. But well, what is kind of like the main thrust, for lack of a better term, of uh, Immortal Tales? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I mean, the title pretty much spells it out. It's a series of immoral tales. And, and fun fact, when it was first premiered, I think he only had two segments done, one of which is not in the final film. It's part of the beast which we will get into but he showed the first two parts alongside a documentary he made on his collection of vintage erotic <laughs> art uh which i'm sure was people were just like uh okay this is the pornographer now um but I, I like that a lot of the art was actually like it was supposed to be these antique objects and he just yeah. created a lot of it like he actually oh, he did a lot of it yeah like it's his own <laughs> creations I, I, I wish I had seen the whole film. I know there are bits and pieces of it in some of like the interviews and whatnot mm-hmm. uh, on the Aero discs, but there's certainly a lot of like little uh, uh, like automatons that have uh, erect phalluses. But just to, just to <laughs> kind of give the viewer a mental image, that won't be the last phallus we talk about today. Um, so Immoral Tales, we have four vignettes in the, in the official film, originally five, cut one out to keep it at exhibition length and to keep it in another film. Uh, the first one is called The Tide, uh, and in The Tide, it is the story of a young man whose young cousin, uh, who he deems to be uh, naive enough to lure into a sexual tryst, uh, they go out on a little uh, walk by the beach he leads her to a place where he knows the tides will rise high enough that they will be trapped and tries to talk her into performing fellatio on him uh, while he tells her all about the tides, which is kind of like a little male fantasy type thing. But well, he very wants bizarre... to come like right as the tide yeah. like reaches its peak and he's trying to figure out a way. Like, he has a, a very elaborate construct in his head about how to time things and it's definitely one if that's your fetish that's a very complicated process <laughs> by, by, by which to, to get off 
it's it, but it's it's almost like he's trying to say like, look at how much control I have. Look, look how much power I can exert. I can do this so I I can act as though nothing's happening below deck and just talk about the tides. Yet it doesn't quite work out that way because his sixteen-year-old cousin. It, who, who says that she's never had any sexual experiences before, seems like she's either really g- good at giving head or he's just does not have the same kind of control or power that he thinks he does. Because we have that great sweeping shot of the tide rising and the, the waves crashing around them as he's suddenly unable to speak anymore about what he said he was going to speak on and is just kind of succumbing to the pleasure. Which I, I just think it's very interesting. It's kind of like this little duality between... Um, power, submission, dominance, uh, what a man thinks that he can do, what a woman's role is supposed to be. And I, I like, you can call him a pornographer all you want. He's clearly saying something with these movies. And I think that's a great way to kind of showcase like, oh, there is something more here. We're not just seeing a lurid tale. We're not just seeing smut. It really is artistic in its own way. Also, it's exploring how sometimes the fantasies you've constructed in your own mind by achieving them they become quite a different thing when you experience them firsthand. Like sometimes it's nice just to let a fantasy remain a fantasy because once you explore a fantasy, then all you have left is kind of like this feeling of emptiness. And you're like, all right, well now I've got to constructing something even more elaborate. And so perhaps it would have been better if he just allowed this strange tidal blowjob to remain <laughs> just a, a fantasy that would never actually be completely uh, explored. I can't disagree with that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it, yeah. No, that I, I would say that's kind of interplay between all... It, it's There's a lot of surrealism, obviously. There's a lot of dream and fantasy versus reality. It, it's, it's, a, it's a huge interplay between kind of how we want to portray ourselves, what our innermost desires are, and the world that's outside of it. And uh, that that's def- definitely something we'll touch upon later as we get to our fourth film. Um, shall I keep going through the Oh, sure, yeah. Little... It gives a, the quick synopsis for the, uh, the remaining three as well. All right. The next one, Teresa Philosopher. Uh, I'm butchering it, I'm sure. It's, it's very the cucumber French, one. Is it a... it's a... What's that? <laughs> the cucumber one. Oh, yeah, the cucumber one. Yeah, chopped cucumbers. Um, a, a, a young lady apparently loves Jesus so much she's sent to her room uh, with cucumbers. Why they send her to her room with cucumbers, I don't know. That's like her, her, her meal. Let's just say she doesn't eat them. Um, and <laughs> to get perverse, one of them ends up cut. I don't know how she cuts it because that cucumber does not go in her mouth. So either there, there's something down there that she's able to slice them with or she's really going to town because literally uh, the cucumber goes where the sun don't shine and it comes out in several pieces. That's th- th- This is one of the things, like I, this is the only Barovchek film that I had seen when James, you had first pitched it, <laughs> and the cucumbers stick out in my mind probably more than anything else. <laughs> the old That's penis true. fly trap. Yeah. Able, to, able to chop cu- cucumbers. Yeah, that, 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 that's an unusual one. All right, well, keep, keep going. You've got some good momentum going. Okay, I'll just keep going here. I, All right. And also with that one, she, she's exploring a lot of things that she has in her room. There's a book of illicit uh, artwork. Um, there's a doll that she plays with a, in the incorrect way. Um, she, she clearly really seems to be putting religion and sexuality in the same box where that box does not really go together. And, and I will also state that other than the first film in this little series, they're all kind of set in a period of antiquity. Uh, Borovchek sorry, seems to have a sort of fascination with that. And it doesn't surprise me because when I think of these older time periods, I think of a lot of sexual repression. And that's kind mm-hmm. of a boundary that he's trying to break down. So the next one... Um, I, I think the, the Beast title, is the all... next one in like the, the full-length version, but then I, I think it's probably Elizabeth Bathory, right? 
Uh, yes, that's yeah. what. It, yeah, and that, um, it kind of works like without the beast. I think it actually works better because it feels like the um, the extremity of each short just increases with each mm. segment. Because the beast was originally the first piece in here, correct? Uh, maybe the first, or well, I think on the Blu-ray when I watched it, it was like right smack in the middle, and it, it's hard okay. to come back after watching the beast. No, <laughs> it sort of works yeah, better yeah, that, without that, it. That's yeah. your emotional peak, and yeah, after that's where you you, you got to fade to black after you've seen the beast. <laughs> Especially because I would say without it, the the uh, Elizabeth Bathory one feels like the the centerpiece of the whole movie. It feels yeah. like it's the longest short. Uh, it, it is this. Oh my goodness, I. These things, like, it's the kind of thing where you try to take notes while you watch it, but instead you're just, like, watching it with your mouth on the floor. So you have to kind of go back and be like, what were the characters' names? Uh, which nude lady was which? Because right. there's a lot of nude ladies in this one. But a, a noble female is going around the English, or, I don't know, English, the uh, European uh, countryside. Slovak and, or Hungarian, Hungary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Oh, and also, uh, let me just say the music to all these are, like, Hungarian folk music, mm-hmm. which which adds, which adds a certain sense of levity and a, definitely a very Eastern European feel, which I think both contrasts and complements the, uh, the 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 images we're seeing on the screen. The the, the uh, <laughs> I, I I I I'm at a loss for words right now because I'm just thinking about a bunch of uh, naked ladies being murdered so that one lady can bathe in their blood because that's what happens here. Mm-hmm. So she goes around and collects all these 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 young nubile women so that she can have her nice little bloodbath. Which is a story um, I had heard before. I mean, anytime you're reading about vampire lore and things like that, you always come across this famous story of this noble woman who was bathing in the blood of virgins in order to preserve her, her youth, etc. And I think it even comes up maybe in uh, Daughters of Darkness, the film from 1971. Mm-hmm. And I think she's like the, like the one who originally kind of gets it going. So it's a, I think it's a pretty com- relatively common fable, at least in, in Eastern I mean, European. It's based kind on of a real person. It's, uh, I think she was like got in trouble with the king and had to be locked up and she was like a real countess <laughs> yes uh, so, uh, Murder, yeah. murdering all the virgins in your county is uh, frowned upon right <laughs> um i mean to me like this is the best of the four shorts and like visually it's gorgeous and it's the way borovchik mixes the humor with the violence is really interesting like I, I don't know. I laughed when um, one of the girls is drawing. It looks like a sun at first, and the guard woman's like, "Hey, what's that?" And she's, like, "Oh, I'm just drawing the sun." But then she turns it into a dick, and you know, then they're trying to wipe the graffiti off the walls of the <laughs> bathing area, you know. And then like the the large formations of these naked people moving around, like that's really what made me think of uh, Salo or the 120 Days of Sodom. Like it has this mm-hmm. sort of Pasolini feel to it. It's probably closer to like the um, the earlier Pasolini. But when you see that many naked bodies yeah. in one shot, it's, it stops being like arousing. You lose the individuality. Yeah. You lose the sort of... Uh, it, it gets... Yeah. It almost looks like you're looking at like um, like a bunch of cattle about to be slaughtered. But it, it's like... the, like, the least, like, yeah, But it's like the least erotic thing possible. Like, oh, you think I go, oh, 30 naked girls showering and bathing together. Like, what could be better? But you can't even like pick out the individual girls. So, it, and strangely, it actually had like kind of the reverse effect in a lot of ways. And you would think, though, like, because there are clothed people, like the like the, the young guard who was revealed at the end to have been a lady the whole time. It was like, this is a pretty feminine-looking young boy or or man. I, I didn't know she was supposed to be a boy, but, but yeah, I didn't realize that yeah. either. <laughs> it, it, 
I was like, See, I thought, like, oh, could they just not get a boy because there's a bunch of naked ladies? Oh, it is a lady the whole time. But you would think, though, in that case, like Elizabeth Bathory, she would remain clothed as to set herself apart. And while she does maintain some articles of clothing, she's obviously stripped naked as well and becomes kind of one of them before they're all massacred and she bathes in the blood. And let me also just say that I did rewatch portions of this short this afternoon while there were children playing outside my window. I don't have blinds, so I may have traumatized an Easter egg hunt. I was traumatized. <laughs> I, I mean, not that I ever had like any fantasies about watching women bathe in blood, but having seen her bathe in blood and seeing how matted up her pubis gets with like you know kind of congealed blood, it was one of the most revolting things I've ever seen. Obviously, today girls tend to be a little bit more well groomed, so that would not be a concern. But that was one of the more foul things I remember from these movies was just uh, how the way the blood would cling to her as she was bathing in it. You're going to see a lot more blood in that region as we continue going down this list. Absolutely. <laughs> and I let me just say that I think it's also very fascinating that it seems like the subject of a lot of his more erotic films, obviously I've only seen these slightly more erotic films, uh, tend to focus on female pleasure and female desire and female mm-hmm. fantasy. Obviously there are some male-driven fantasies, but like this one, it's about a woman that wants to bathe in blood. The the one before this is about a lady that loves cucumbers. And God. Um, and like, like you said, like, uh, oh, 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 I'm drawing the sun, but it turns into a penis. And typically you think of men as being the more perverted ones. Women obviously can have their own proclivities and their own fantasies, but coming from a male voice, it, it, it makes me want to wonder, like, is this guy trying to make a feminist statement? Is this, is he portraying female pleasure for his own pleasure? I think there's a lot at play I here. I I would probably lean more toward the latter. I mean, because, I mean, obviously there are plenty of people out there who get more turned on by watching other people become turned mm-hmm. on. It's not about their own pleasure. They get aroused by watching other people achieve a climax, et cetera, and so forth. And I have, I have a feeling he is definitely, in his own way, exploring his own fantasies by, by, by kind of projecting his fantasies onto these other characters. But at the same time, and I know that we're completely speaking out of context here because this is France in the 70s. This is a Polish filmmaker that, that saw most of his success in France. One of the movies we're talking about today is in his native country. It seems like he immigrated to, to France very early on, which probably would have been much harder later in his career. And he probably wouldn't have been able to make things like Immoral Tales in Poland. But um, in modern Hollywood, I feel like female pleasure is looked down upon more, especially by the being, ratings people. Like if yeah, you by uh, the ratings people, like, there's a great documentary about uh, ratings and how if, like they were talking about the film. Uh, the, I think it's The Cooler, and there shows a, yeah. a close up of Maria Bella's face while uh, William H. Macy's going down on her and she's having an orgasm, but it's just a close-up of her face and that got him an NC-17 rating, just the even the close-up of a girl achieving orgasm. And I was like, mm-hmm. whoa, that seems inconsistent and a double standard, et cetera. So there's a long <laughs> tradition of that. So I think when you look at it through a 21st century 2019 lens, you can see there being a sense of uh, feminism here, whether or not that was the original intent or approach. But I, I do find it fascinating that that is more so the subject that, that he's trying to, to showcase. And I, I think a lot of people could compare him to Louise Bunuel. Obviously, this film won uh, the, the L'Age d'Or Award yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for, for movies that push boundaries. And I can definitely see a lot of his connections, especially in his later films with some of the later films of Bunuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Story of Sin seems like uh, a sleazier Bunuel film. Even the, the fact that like Bunuel, uh, later Bunuel films, like they're very fragmented. Like there, there's not really like a story that connects, uh, you know, obscure object of desire or that that sort of thing. Like they're very, mm-hmm. 
you know, almost like vignettes, or there might be like a very loose through line in his later films. Mm-hmm. And he also, Boonwell also sometimes can be described as having very flat images. He doesn't want the, yes. the, the frame to look beautiful. So it's a very similar approach. And obviously, Boonwell's early things have a hint of animation, clearly not as much as Borovchek. But uh, Boonwell's big thing is like male pleasure is going to lead to your downfall, whereas Borovchek might be like, oh, if if you if you really uh, try to get your desires, who knows what's going to happen? Or that even like in that good. obscure object of desire, even the pursuit of pleasure can be yeah. an infuriating test. And we we talked about Bunuel quite a while back when we did his. Uh, I think we did what sixties and seventies Bunuel. But yeah, some of those scenes, that obscure object of desire. But do you think it's fair to describe his movies as having like a flat look? Because I think some of his movies in the seventies are some of the stunningly fo- photographed movies I, of that. Decade. I mean, I, I think they're gorgeous. I think like just uh, when I say flat, I mean in the way he frames his images, yeah. in the way he sort of presents them. Like, I, I think sometimes that's kind of derided when we talk about cinematography. Like, I had a cinematography professor in school who was like, oh, the whole job of a cinematographer is to create depth. You shoot into corners, you do, like, all that stuff. But, you know, it's just part of his style. Like, um, you know, again, like Color of Pomegranates is sort of what I think of as being that kind of beautiful, flat-looking film. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, his artwork has... Or, you know, the film, like, it has that fine art kind of look to it of, you know, we're just going to have a very composed, very detailed images against, like, sort of a flat background and, you know, actually sort of draw emphasis to certain details. Uh, but I, I think that's just his visual style. And, like, his lighting is gorgeous. I think maybe it, it works uh, to the detriment of the beast that it's so, like, brightly... <laughs> lit beautifully lit because it it lets you see a lot of details in the creature that maybe you shouldn't no, you, that needs to be you need to watch that like a grainy vhs pan scan <laughs> like degraded that, image to make it, it yeah. seem a little bit more uh, convincing because yeah that might be the least convincing prosthetic beast <laughs> <laughs> in movie history but, but, but I, don't, yeah. I don't want to jump the shark but while we're still talking about girls bathing in blood but what about the uh the fourth story where we basically have this um this pope Marrying a uh, a young girl, uh, his daughter. Oh yeah, his yeah. daughter. Yeah, I, I left yeah. it out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the moral of this is it's very important to keep it in the family. That's all I can really say because he he has an entire ceremony upon uh, conceiving a child with his own daughter because you know what that's how you keep the the, the papal bloodline pure. I mean that's also very Bunwellian the sort of attack on the church kind of uh, like early Bunwell critiquing Catholicism and. You have to remember, too, like, uh, coming from Poland, Borovchek, uh, Poland has always been sort of very religiously conservative. And, um, I mean, that kind of in conjunction with the, the sort of prudish communist rhetoric, I, I think creates an environment where expressing sexuality through art is, is a rebellious act or even just... Is this the one with all the drawings of the horse cocks scattered throughout? I think maybe that's in the earlier one, but like that—that that would be a motif if the beast was left in there, because that—that yeah. <laughs> sort of connects the two films. It sort of feels like he had like a through line that got cut out when he removed the segment. But maybe he just likes horse cocks. Let the guy like horse cocks. <laughs> well, because there definitely are still drawings in there. Yeah, I mean, he probably has done more to celebrate the horse cock than any other filmmaker in history. The, the, opening, the opening scene, scene, of, the scene beast of the beast is so. yeah, yeah. That's you ain't seen horse cock until you've seen the beast. I thought I got too much horse cock when I watched Yapon the other week. Man, I was... <laughs> I, it was just like a horse cock marathon at my house this, this, this month. Carlos Regret, he's giving him a run for his money. <laughs> yeah. 
We just need to, we need to all gather together and make a third horsecock film so that there can be like a, a the horsecock trilogy. The horsecock yeah. trilogy. <laughs> Well, on that note, maybe we should switch to the uh, the elephant in the room, the Beast, 1975, which begins with this scene where you hear horse hooves clacking on stone. You hear these horses neighing as the credits go by, and then what you're subjected to in the opening is a little breeding ritual with two horses and. Man, my grandfather, he used to race horses for racing, and I was around horses a lot, but I never actually had seen the physical act of love between two horses until this particular sequence. And it's pretty goddamn intense, but what blew my mind was how... I don't even know how horses actually breed in the wild because it seems like it's, they have a really hard time finding how to how to get it in there. Like because the fucking dick's swinging all around like a goddamn lasso with a ball on the end. It's like it, it's total bedlam and chaos, and it, it seems like they require a lot of assistance to even make the magic moment happen. Like to quote Jeff Goldblum, "Life finds a way." Life finds a way. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that this is not an episode that I'm going to tell my parents to listen to. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to send this to everybody. <laughs> so, um, uh, in case you ever wanted to see a close-up of a horse's wet vagina, watch The Beast. And um, how the horse, the, the male horse kind of cleans her up after the, the deed is oh, done. He kind of gives her a little once-over just to make sure she's nice and tidy. I, I just... Like, Let's take a step back and say that the, 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 the third act, there is a dream sequence, which was the excised short from Immoral Tales, which we will get into. He took that out and said, I need to make a feature film around this. I'm not going to have any of the same characters. It's just going to be a dream sequence. 
opening it with horses having sex. Let's let's do that. So off from the get-go, you are just like, what the hell am I getting myself into? And I, I'm, I'm just going to run with hell on the plot right now since I'm already going. <laughs> I'm already Go fired up. <laughs> um, it's the story of a young lady who who is, is set to inherit a lot of money as long as she marries this one particular dude, which sounds like a cartoon plot. Uh, and this is anything but a family-friendly cartoon plot because the man that she's set to marry has some interesting uh, things about him. He's got a tail. Him. Uh, <laughs> <spoiler> <laughs> a tail. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and, and he obviously breeds horses. And let me just say, without saying that I was disappointed in this movie, because I, I think I got more than I bargained for anyways, but I really expected him to have a horse penis. I, I thought at the end, when they when they disrobed him and flipped him over, I was expecting full-blown horse cock to kind of complete the, the cycle. But I guess if that happened, it would have taken away from the, the whole uh, shock value of the titular uh, beast that, that occurs in the dream sequence itself. Even though he is also the beast in a more religious sense, potentially. I mean, a lot of people have made the Beauty and Beast comparisons. And, like, I mean, the... Uh... The origins of the Beauty and the Beast story, it's not quite the Disney, oh, it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside, it's what you are on the inside. Like, the original version of the story, it's more about arranged marriage, and like, yeah, yeah like, he may maybe he's a horrifying monster, but uh, he's you'll got money, and you'll learn to get along with him. Like, that's yeah. kind of the uh, the root of that story, and you can feel that more in the this particular version, has a lot of that. And I, I think a lot of Borovchek's films have this through line of the relationship between external stimuli and how that affects the imagination. Like, a Story of Sin sort of has that opening where the priest's like, yeah, like, sin comes from the imagination, but don't feed the imagination. And to me, like, the the dream sequence in The Beast, it, the idea of the framing all around the dream sequence is kind of everything that provokes this fantasy. Mm -hmm. And, the, the, uh, again, like, the, the horse sex at the beginning, it's kind of you know, one of the things that I, I think is meant to kind of play into this soup that eventually becomes this dream sequence, which it's all built around. But yeah, like once you should, that for me, the movie never really reclaims those heights. The horse scene at the beginning <laughs> is so outrageous that it's, it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's real. Yeah, it's real. You can't fake that. And the beast no, it's is so, much so better ridiculous than the actual beast looking itself. in the fantasy that it just yep. can't even begin to approach the, the delirious heights of that opening sequence. And I've, where I, like, I've read some people's reviews and analyses where they're like, oh, clearly like the falseness of the beast outfit is meant to be comical or, oh no, it's, it's fake to show that like, really there's a person on the inside, but like you read Borovchek's notes about making that costume and that's clearly not his intent. He's like, no, it needs to look real and be horrifying. I think it's just sort of like a bad costume, which on top of that, he lights with this like very romantic, brightly lit, like that that was his visual style and he sort of makes it like his later films he gets a bit darker visually but like a bright evenly lit horror monster it, it just looks so goofy that it's really hard to take seriously when you had this harpsichord score that's got like three notes <laughs> yes. on a loop for like 30 straight minutes and I, I think i heard that tune in the back of my head for like a day after revisiting this movie it wasn't necessarily a movie that i ever even really wanted to, i mean I, i've watched plenty of strange weird perverted shit in my in my day but i saw this movie for the first time like 15 16 17 years ago 
and it wasn't necessarily on my to-do list to revisit it, but yeah, the whole mm-hmm. elaborate beast sequence, I actually think is the the weakest yeah. part of the movie. The stuff that I find more interesting is like the maid in the household getting in on with the butler with like the yes. kids hidden in the wardrobe, the and I'm like, whoa, what the yeah. fuck's going on there? That's really strange. Or like the, the bride-to-be lying around in this kind of diaphanous, transparent gown and masturbating. Yes. And, and like all that stuff for me is way more enticing erotic interesting complex the b sequence itself for me it's almost like watching like a three stooges short it's just kind of just <laughs> ridiculous in a lot of ways I, I, I had to write down the note the beast fucks the wig at one point yeah and i mean, I, I mean like wouldn't you wouldn't you all he needs is no. like friction and he's coming all over the place like he he can come on your stomach he can come against a tree like a feet doesn't matter all he requires is some external stimuli and he's off to the races so i, I guess even he, think has... he needs external stimuli he's constantly coming yeah <laughs> the entire time, every th- time you see that thing, there's some sort of fluid is spewing out of it. Yeah, he definitely can, is capable of spreading his seed, given given, given the opportunity. Man and can we say that, that the fantasy girl in this, I, I think it's the most comical way I've ever seen someone become disrobed, because I've been in the woods before, <laughs> and I've never left naked. Not yet, at least. Not yet. The beast, uh, the beast has minimal impact in her disrobing. Minimal. Wait, remind me. How how does she become disrobed? I can't remember. It's mostly just getting caught on sticks and and, yeah, yeah. Oh, gotcha. She goes from full Victorian gown. That that does not seem like it's easy to remove. Yeah, like nine layers of fabric. And and yet the trees, they just do their work. They even take the wig off. I guess Sam Raimi must have seen this before making Evil Dead. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. I mean, which like I get thematically like what what he's going for. It's just I think. I don't know, the, the short, it just comes across so ridiculous, and like yeah. you said, I, I think the stuff around it is much more interesting and feels sort of uh, more more thought out, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. So what do y'all think about the scene where the bride-to-be is like uh, getting herself off while looking at erotic horse porn? I, the whole time I was thinking, she's gonna love the man she's about to marry? <laughs> this is the guy for her? What a match made in heaven! I was wrong. Bad dreams. Was it Maturin? Is that his name? The the, the name of the the, the character with the tail? Maturin or Maturin? (laughs) Anyway, it's a French pronunciation. But yeah, I think if he had his way, he would not be breeding with women in any way, shape, or form. He would definitely prefer to spend his evenings in the stables. But but this this girl likes that. See, he needs to get used to that. It's a reverse Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) He needs to get used to a beauty instead of a beast. But he drinks too much anyway, so he he's dead. Spoiler. Spoiler alert for anyone that's not seen this movie. Um, sh- should I not have even said this? He he drinks too much and dies. And that's how they find out that he's actually a beast with a tail and a claw for a hand, which has been hidden under this cast the entire movie. Well, I guess important question for both of you guys, because I feel like it's these movies are very provocative and outrageous and have lots of things to discuss and things to get shocked by. But on some level... Do you guys, just as movie fans, enjoy watching Immoral Tales and The Beast? Because I'm not entirely convinced that I actually like either of these movies, although I find them interesting and I enjoy being exposed to them and I enjoy like, you know, giggling about all the silly parts. But are y'all a fan of the of these two flicks? Uh, I, not so much these two. I think the two that we're going to talk about next I like quite a bit more. But... Uh... Like uh, visually, like I, uh, you know, I can tell they're beautiful, and I can tell there's stuff going on, and it's sort of interesting. I'm glad I watched them, of course, but mm-hmm. it, I sort of feel like, oh, uh, like I didn't quite click with these 
these ones as much as uh, some of his other work. Yeah, like, I don't I, know if I'd ever recommend them to anybody unless they say, hey, if you want to have a laugh at something outrageous. But for me, it's I don't necessarily get like a fulfilling experience out of watching either of them. And, and I, in a way that, I mean, what would be an erotic movie from the 70s that does do that? I, I had to think about that a little bit. But if you are looking for a great erotic experience, I don't know if I would steer people toward either of these flicks. Well, most of his films I don't think are especially erotic like there's a lot of sex in them but like when the girl's getting herself off on the bedpost that actually did turn me on I was like oh shit like she's she's still she's still ready to go like that that bit i found uh just something about like the redhead with like the braids and her body so lean like there are definitely little moments that i found titillating but just as a movie going experience i don't know if i find either the beast or immoral tales to be completely satisfying i i i'm in the same camp with martin where i prefer the other two films we're talking about but i I probably wouldn't recommend The Beast other than for the ridiculousness of the ending, even though I do think it has some artistic value. I might be alone in there. I think Immoral Tales I'd recommend if if I knew the person was open-minded enough to what's what's being shown on the screen. I, I think there is an amount of, of value there. I don't think it's completely tasteless. I do think that there is an there, there's art behind it. It's just I would recommend the other two films I, first. I think sometimes but, but, that art behind it, like, it's easier to see once you've seen a little bit more of his films, too. Like, yeah. I think maybe they're not the best place to start. Like, I think, yeah. oh, you can see how he juxtaposes uh, sexual awakening with sexual violence. And you can sort of get a better feel for how he works out his themes in some of his other films and then kind of go back and see them in these shorts. Yeah, I, I do think that most people, when they think Borovchek, they're going to enter it the same way I did, by seeing Immoral Tales and The Beast first, because yeah, these are the famous. two... Yeah, breakout hits. Yeah, yeah. So, so and you're historically, see these that is important because I, mean, I don't. I, I don't want people to get annoyed by the fact that I'm kind of bashing his flicks because historically, I value what he accomplished tremendously. Because if you don't have people breaking down walls of prudish sentiments or censor, like censorship or whatever the case might be, you need these people who are going to swing the wrecking ball and try to explore new territory. So I value that, but I guess. As a historian, I admire these two movies, but as a film lover, I don't particularly enjoy these two movies. I, I don't think they're quite as good as something that's a similar erotic light, like uh, uh, In the Realm of the Senses, which you'd mentioned earlier. Right. Which is I fucking think incredible. In the, of, yeah. in the Realm of the Senses is fantastic. That's one of my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. And it does treat eroticism so casually that by the time that you're at the end of the movie, you, you, it's almost like you've forgotten that you're seeing something that's so outrageous and so completely outside the, the the realm of normality and you kind of feel that way you're lulled into a sense of like oh this is just the movie this is just what i'm seeing now it's not that bizarre that i'm seeing a comically large paper mache uh monster penis that is constantly spewing uh ejaculate raping a uh a, a nubile young victorian lady you on its own, that is completely ridiculous and horrible and something that the average person probably would never want to experience in their entire life seeing on screen. But because of the fact that the whole movie, like you do have the interspersed things with the, the butler and the servant uh, having their little trysts completely nude, seeing every little detail. But you you do get used to it, weirdly enough. And that poor guy, man, he can never finish. Like he's just he, every time things are going well, he gets called back and back to work. But it seems like you know work wouldn't be that bad if like half your day is spent rolling around in the hay, and the other half of your day you know attending to your duties. But since y'all seem to be lean more toward the latter films, let's dig into Story of Sin, 1975, which I think of all these probably is 
most comfortable. Like this is one that you can show like an art house cinemas, no problem. People would look at it in a, in a very very positive light. I think I probably prefer Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mrs Osborne. Yeah. But Mister yeah. Kessler, what is going on in the nineteen seventy five film Story of Sin? Uh, oh, Dave does the synopsis so much better than I do. Basically, All right, then Dave, Mister Dave, <laughs> give, give us the synopsis of Story of Sin. Let's just say this is the most shocking of his movies because it's so normal. After well, like, you could put this as a double like, bill with like Ken Russell's Women in Love. Like I, I feel like it's that kind of easily. a movie. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And th- this movie is totally Boonwell meets Ken Russell. It is yes. a hazy, grainier uh, Belle de Jour or Tristana. It is literally about a young woman of noble-ish means uh like her, her dad's a doctor she clearly and this this is his polish film of the four we're talking about this one this is his only polish, polish feature film yeah it's his only full polish feature film yeah. totally yeah oh wow okay no i did i did know that he had gone to france pretty early on I, i'm surprised they let him back after the beast honestly. yeah <laughs> i mean like uh i think it was a little bit similar with uh where he went to france and then he had a big hit, so they're like, oh, come back and make make us something. And then he tried making uh, on the Silver Globe, and they're like, get out! Get, yeah, get, get, out get back when out! When Buñuel made Viridiana, uh, it, it totally blew up in the face of the, the Spanish that had called for his return, but I, I love Viridiana, so yeah. I, I like seeing those homecomings from time to time. That would be a good little movie marathon. Uh, misfire, not misfire homecomings, but homecomings that irritated the home country. There's a great political cartoon of uh, Franco as the dictator in Spain at the time, and you see uh, Buñuel like, coming across the ocean giving him a present the present ends up blowing up in franco's face because it was meant to be like spain's <laughs> entry into Cannes, and that's sort of like this big prestige film but of course viridiana is quite um blasphemous and uh irreverent sure. toward religion and that sort of thing so it definitely was not ex- precisely the film that franco had intended but that's a subject for another day yeah. <laughs> um and one we actually talked about before but anyways uh, we so tackled this viridiana is- no, we did not. We did not. We tackled Tristan. I'm getting things confused. We yeah, should yeah, yeah. do. We should go back and do some of Boonwell's early, early films. 60, as well. Early sixties Boonwell is fucking incredible. Yeah. It's yes. great. That, that's right. We were going to do that, but we haven't yet. But good, good segue into Story of Sin, <laughs> which which tells the story of Eva, and she even says at the beginning like uh, Eve. She has the same name as the original sinner, and she is someone who's motivated by not by lust. I'm going to say by love here. She loves. Uh, Lucas, in, so infatuation. much. She, she, yeah, she's infatuated by this guy that probably does not like her as much as no, she likes like, him. Oh, yeah, I'll probably scum. divorce my wife and hook up with you. Maybe yeah. I don't know. Like whatever. No, he's an opportunist, <laughs> yeah. and he's sleazy, and he's unreliable. But for whatever reason, emotionally or chemically or due to pheromones or whatever, he's got his hooks into her, and she. Yeah, it's it's frustrating to a degree when you watch a girl who's so beautiful and so stunning kind of debasing herself in pursuit of this total scumbag, but that is the story. Yeah, she's going to lose everything trying to, to be with this man. She's going to lose everything. Every opportunity she had, she's going to be tracking all across Europe to try to catch him because in in his path to get a divorce, he gets arrested in, in Rome. And uh, she had, oh, and probably the most shocking thing here, spoiler alert, is when she has his baby and just tosses it in the, t- in the baby house. Yeah, yeah. Just that, that's, that's dark, grim that's, shit. It's, that, that's that's the, probably the one part of this film that actually had my jaw on the ground. Similarly the the needle murder freaked me out too because, I don't know, the idea of getting like a syringe full of poison <laughs> you yeah, know, like, well, also that scene so that, complex that was because it's incredibly erotic right up to the point where they inject this guy and carry him away in a box yeah. so yeah for me the story of sin is like a real movie like beast for me is very easy to kind of be dismissive of because it's just yeah. it's so silly in a lot of ways but story of sin 
had an impact on me emotionally, whereas <laughs> the Beast and Immortal Tales, I was able to just kind of shrug them off in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And like the, and, uh, the, the like the period details feel so much more serious. Like there's something very like frilly and kind of you know fantastic about the the costumes and everything in uh, in the Beast and in in. Uh, immoral tales but like story of sin it feels like okay this is going to be like an actual recreation of the period this is based on the classic literary work like it just feels so serious and like you know Borovchek so many of his films have this like surreal kind of element Mm -hmm. and there's no you know it it feels like a Bunuel film until the surreal stuff comes in like the the serious parts or I I don't want to say serious like uh, the the realist part of the surrealist stuff and it just has um I don't know, like, the such realism a strong atmosphere. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but, like, Story of Sin, like, the atmosphere is thick, and it's it's weighty, and, the, like, the only... Uh, or what, one of the films I haven't seen by Borovchek, it's called uh, Lulu, which I, I would really like to see, because it's based on the same source material as Pandora's Box with Louise Brooks. Hmm. Oh, interesting. And uh, Udukir plays the Jack the Ripper character uh, Pandora's in Pandora's Box next week with our okay. friend Amanda, so... Oh. Oh, that one of my favorite films. But like, I really want to see uh, Borovchik's take on that because, like, first of all, Story of Sin, it's kind of a similar story of this like young woman's gradual kind of downfall, and uh, like, it, it just feels like a perfect kind of meeting of like subject matter with filmmaker. And I don't know whether Lulu, it's a success or not. I haven't seen it, but like, I can imagine that being like just as good as Story of uh, Story of Sin to me. It, like, it, it's just. Uh, I don't know, like, it has that kind of, like, f- feel to it where, you know, you, there's, like, the, the guy with the shaved head and the monocle. Wow. And the I'm sp- on Mr. Skin right now. Lulu, Lulu 1980 it has a lot of really enticing uh, footage to, uh, to, to be explored. <laughs> I, I like how, how I'm looking it up on IMDb and James is looking it up on Mr. Skin. <laughs> well, uh, but I mean, like, when you're talking about the, um... you got you to start with Mr. Skin. That's the more appropriate like, place to be looking up his movies. And I love how in the, But I did look up a lot of the trivia on his movies, and I love how you get down to the part when they're talking about, like, language and violence and <laughs> sex, and it always have these, like, red warnings saying, like, severe yeah. <laughs> the next yeah. to all of his movies. Sure. I, but, like, there's a sort of... Um, self-awareness that feels like really upfront in story of sin where like he knows exactly what he's doing like you know the, the scenes where you see a guy playing the little bronze nude and it's like okay like i'm aware of people's idea that i objectify women i'm actually going to flip that on its head or you know the mm-hmm. paintings of the nudes and how he kind of plays it in, into his own visual style and kind of comments on it like he just feels so in control in story of sin in a way that i'm not sure he is when he's making uh, Immoral Tales or The Beast, and I, I think that's one thing I really responded to. And, like, just the range of kind of sexual expression, like... Is it a stretch if I compare this movie to Senso by Luchino Visconti? Uh... I've not seen Senso yet. I, I haven't I, seen I'm, Senso, but... Uh, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> Alex yes. But, like, there, there is a sort of Visconti kind of feel to it, like, yeah. just uh, the, the way he recreates the period and, like, I don't, like there is sort of a like a death in Venice kind of quality to the film. Like I could yeah. see that, yeah. And, and let me just say to kind of to ebb off what you were saying earlier, Martin, about how this kind of feels a little bit more realistic versus Immoral Tales and the Beast. He was the production designer on pretty much all of his films, so mm-hmm. he is in complete control of pretty much everything that you're seeing on the screen, how it's portrayed, the sets, the costumes to a degree. I mean, the emphasis so, on the props, like all the period props are fantastic, like the phonograph mm-hmm. or like, you know, again, that sort of feels like it's recalling his uh, animation a little bit, just like the yeah. way he details certain props and people interacting with them. Mm-hmm. 
Sorry, okay. I kind of cut you off, but... Oh, no, 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 no worries at all. <laughs> it was originally going to star his wife, Lydia Borovchek. Uh, she was in his early films. Like, she mm -hmm. was in uh, some of his shorts and Goto and Blanche. And she was even in uh, Le Jeté, like I forgot to mention, but Borovchek worked with Chris Marker on a short oh, film. Oh, yeah early what, on the, the astronaut that one's great i love yeah, that one that, that one's really cool so like uh his wife was gonna star in story of sin and then i guess the producers saw i don't know if they actually got to shooting or if it was just like test footage and they're like she's like in her 40s and she's supposed to be playing like a 20 year old so they, they made him basically change actresses but um that that was one bit of trivia I found about it uh hmm. i don't he almost worked with isabella Gianni in immoral tales Hmm. I'm not yeah, she was she was going to be in the in the the first segment. The first segment, okay, yeah. And I think the story is that like Isabella Johnny's mother saw it, saw the script or something <laughs> like that. And it was like nope. Yeah, <laughs> but, if you're, uh, I mean, the choice between doing like the story of Adele H with Truffaut right. or doing it a short film, where right you're around just the same time, a dude on the beach. Yeah, the choice <laughs> is clear. Go go work with Truffaut. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can just say I, I I can't remember the actress's name, but it's the one from the dream sequence in the Beast. She was described as being the next Brigitte Bardot, but I don't think Brigitte Bardot ever did what she did. Yeah, I think the closest Brigitte Bardot ever came to doing like anything resembling softcore at all. There's a scene with Jane Birkin in a movie called like The Story of Don Juan from like the early seventies. But they're just lying in bed. Oh. It's just two beautiful women lying in bed together, like smoking cigarettes and just kinda chilling. But yeah, Brigitte Bardot was naked in plenty of movies, but she never crossed over into full blown Bestiality. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, she, she <laughs> although apparently she loves dogs. She said that she oh, gave dear. her youth to men, but she but now she's gonna give her, her, her twilight years to dogs who she trusts. And racism. Yeah, oh, she, she definitely, yeah, she's, uh, she's been known to be out of step politically with some of the uh, more woke elements of today's society, but I, I don't know if she's actually a racist or not, but she definitely seems to be at least on the right end of the uh, political spectrum in France. I stick by my joke because it was funny. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know enough about her to know. Is, is, yeah. Has she gone on record as like a full-blown racist or anything I, like that? I actually don't know. I just know that she's, she's a wackadoo now. Gotcha. Probably, I, yeah, she may have she, always been a wackadoo. Who yeah. knows? Well, when she and Catherine Deneuve were kind of uh, going up in arms against the Me Too movement in France, I remember there's a certain point where Catherine Deneuve was like, well, maybe I'm not entirely uh, on the same page with Bridget Bardot and all these things, blah, blah, blah. Like, they kind of had like, a little breaking of the ranks in terms of uh, the language they're using. I just knew that Bridget Bardot is a conservative, which for some people makes you, you know, a, a Nazi, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know, I have enough information at my fingertips to confirm or deny one way or another about Miss Bardot. But she did appear in a lot of really cool fucking flicks. But let's move on to my favorite of the bunch, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne from 1981, which is uh, an updating of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. So, Martin, you, you got to do at least one synopsis. Okay, right. Lay it on us. What is going on in this flick? It's an adaptation of the classic um, story, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I guess Dr. Jekyll's the way you actually are supposed to pronounce it. As I learned if from I this say movie. Dr. Jekyll, I will never stop laughing, so I'm just going to <laughs> gonna have to call him Dr. Jekyll. Um, yeah, and it, it's sort of structured like a, you know, a slasher film. You have uh, somebody running around, picking people off. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm already getting the giggles. <laughs> how he takes him out. This, well, this is a podcast his, that required uh, a certain level of maturity that none of us possess. It, or at it least turns I out Mr. Possess. Hyde has like an exceptionally hard and pointed penis, which is a murder weapon. Um, so that that's a part of it. But uh, it's also sort of about um, Dr. Jekyll's wife, Mrs. Osborne, or a uh, fiance 
uh, kind of getting on the same page as him, and like it ends with her drinking his potion and becoming uh, <laughs> just just like uh, Mr. Hyde, and they run off together. But it it's sort of yeah, just like a classic kind of pick them off one by one type horror film with now, this great kind of gothic atmosphere. Robert Louis Stevenson's novel. I'm embarrassed to admit I know almost nothing about the original uh, material. It's like a shorter novel. I think I read it maybe in high school. Uh, I don't remember it super well. But I know that this feels like kind of a change up from the usual themes. Like it's uh, Barovchik's kind of inserting his own themes into it about transcendentalism. And, you know, you have dinner conversations, which uh, he'll just like cut in shots of violence from murder scenes to kind of keep it from getting boring i guess but uh you know he sort of introduces this idea of like transcending morality and our own inhibitions and you know there's a sort of romantic angle to the film a very dark you know i should say but uh, also sort of a romance of you know oh, it's, a to- it's a love story between yeah two sociopaths who yeah. ride off into the sunset to to commit murder and many many it's, it's a great cast too like uh, udo kier plays the um dr jekyll but not Mr. Hyatt, for, uh, which I don't know if that's maybe a little missed opportunity. Like, I like Udo Kier, and it would be fun to... Like, he's so straight-laced in the movie that you almost want to see, like, Udo Kier going kind of crazy and doing his Mr. Hyde. But you have another actor playing Mr. Hyde with, like, a weird haircut where it's almost, like, shaved back into, like, a monk's do. I, I don't know what you'd call that haircut, but... It, it's, like, it's, it's a poorly placed bowl cut. Yeah. And, I, like, I think you guys are right, like... I'd say of the the films that we watched for this episode, Story of Sin's the best, but Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Osborne is the most entertaining. Like, it, it's yeah, just... Agreed. Yeah, one, one's respectable, but the other is wildly entertaining and outrageous. And yeah, I, right. I just found myself, from the word from the, like, the word go in this movie, just I like the lighting, I like the photography, I liked everything about it. And I love how cool they look when they like, are oh. in that weird bath that makes them like, yeah, kind of when they become more depraved and, and their, come their eyes get all red. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, yes, the hatred. <laughs> yeah, they're they're kind of exulting in all these like all these vile emotions, and yeah, there's something just very lurid and very seductive and very just yeah, it's just a, it's a wild fucking okay. ride from start. And it's to got uh, Patrick McGee in it, who's I think like a really interesting actor. It was his last feature film. He died really? fairly young. I think he was only sixty, which I mean, he's not like super he young. He was a hard sixty. He was a hard sixty, right? You know, but like he's. Worked with everyone from like Roger Corman to Stanley, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. I guess yeah. you, Jack Nicholson did that too. But like you know, he's in. Uh, he worked with Joseph Losey. He worked with uh, Lucio Fulci. Like incredible, incredible career. A uh, ton of great films. A ton of sleazy films. You know, it, probably his most famous role is playing uh, Marquis de Sade in Marat Sade. It's like maybe the definitive on-screen Marquis de Sade. Uh, so like he's really great to see in this film and he adds this kind of air of uh, it, like he almost has, brings this like atmosphere of like hammer horror kind of to the film the way he pronounces things and like the little bit of theatricality he adds to it after he like accidentally murders the coachman they're <laughs> 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 like oh no the murderer is escaping he just runs out and shoots the first guy he sees but uh, he's really great um, yeah the, the, the cast I actually like quite a bit it's, it's sort of weird because no matter which version you watch, it's like everyone just spoke in their own language and they dubbed over it Italian style. So it, it kind of has this like Suspiria vibe. I, I was telling Dave 
Yeah, you, you, you kind of described it as, as having a Giallo vibe, and I yeah, it's totally, like that electronic totally soundtrack. Agree. Like most of Barovchik stuff has like sort of a classical kind of score to it, and this has like an electronic, like Suspiria, Clockwork Orange kind of soundtrack to it, and at like the visually, it's so much darker than any of the any of the other films I've seen of his, and it's like he finally. Like, oh, this is how you shoot a horror film <laughs> compared well, to The Beast, this, I feel like. It also helps that this entire movie is kind of set, takes place over the course of a single night. Yeah. Which is, which, which is one and of my so favorite, confined. like, oh, like, people like, trapped it, in a house overnight. Partly it's That's a one of my budget, favorites. I think, but it's this, like, yeah. maze-like house that they're all running around in, and it just feels like, like, I don't know, that house is as big or as confined as he needed to be, which I really like. Also, I think the perverted parts of this movie are more interesting than the other films. Like when you yes. see a girl, basically, like uh, like her father's tied up, and this girl bends over and like raises her gown, and she's getting like screwed in front of her father. Like there's some really strange stuff. But obviously, she wants her father to see, and then she kind of enjoys being whipped by him later on. Like I just think when it comes to vice and sin and acts of carnality that are frowned upon by the outside world, I, I think this movie kind of leans into it with more. I guess um, authenticity, whereas mm-hmm. it seems like the the sinful aspects of the earlier movies are more kind of like played for last in a lot of ways. I, I just, I'm just not as invested in them. This seems like they actually are trying to explore some really strange, perverse stuff in a way that people who are into those perverted things might find interesting. Well, I think and, it's so well, brilliant that someone decided to to make Doctor Jekyll like a movie about sexual perversion. I'm kind of shocked that I had never thought of someone doing that before seeing this, because it makes total sense that it's about a guy that drinks a potion that basically brings out all his inner inhibitions. Of course, he would turn the, into a Victorian sex horror does that over and over and over again. Whether you're talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula mm-hmm. or Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, like it's because you weren't allowed to explore these things overtly through horror. It allowed these authors to kind of uh, get away with murder and all sorts of strange perversions. Well, what this would make like a perfect triple feature with is the uh, Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey, uh, Dracula, and Flesh for Frankenstein. Like those films, which are very sort of sexualized, you know, going back to the source material and kind of reinterpreting it as, uh, you know, sort of a filmmaker working from a literary source to create the horror story. And like, like, oh, Flesh for Frankenstein, wait a bit, like, Frankenstein could be sexy. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I sort of feel like that, you know, it's the perfect kind of, like, trilogy, maybe, if you wanted to watch them all together. Like, it would fit right in into those films, which also have Udo Kier, of course. And one of the alternate titles for this is actually Blood of Dr. Jekyll, or right. the French title Dr. Jekyll and His Women. Well, wasn't that also because it got released several times in, like, severely truncated form? And so, and kind of each time yes. it got released, it would ha- get, like, receive a different title? That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. I think well, what I'm saying, it was released in the the UK under the title "The Blood of Dr. Jekyll," and then later as "Bloodlust," and it was also <laughs> shown as "Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Osborne" at the Seedgate Film Festival. But when Arrow finally released it in 2015, that was actually the film's first legitimate commercial release in any medium mm-hmm. in the U.S. So this is for the for at least for American audiences a pretty new discovery in a lot of ways. And I have to say, I, I think. In terms of just raw, pure, movie-going pleasure, this one I found to be the most satisfying. Yeah. And I, I really think, again, it, it's shocking that a movie so perverse about a, a madman that bathes in murky, uh, dirty-looking water and turns into a sex maniac that, that, that kills people with his gigantic pointy penis <laughs> has a weird message about, like, in order to really 
be connected with someone truly, you need to let out everything about yourself. You can't hold back anything. The entire ending, after he's almost <laughs> killed his wife with a poisoned arrow, she jumps into the vat of, of gross water and also becomes her own version of, of Mr. Hyde. And becomes and way get, hotter. Like She's yeah, already hot, yeah. but she becomes way hotter when she goes full evil. And but but because these two are able to open up and share both aspects of their personality, both the the one they can show the rest of the world and the one that only exists behind closed doors, that's when they can connect and actually have a, a true relationship with one another, which says so much in, in a in a in a giallo mm-hmm. slasher movie with a pointy penis. It says so much about it's humanity. a very mature story in a lot it, of ways. It really really is. And yeah. It's so funny that 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 aspect of it comes across at the end and it it, it kind of like oh why didn't i think of her jumping in the vet like oh look at this this movie's gonna have a point to it other than just the point of his penis oh (laughs) i think you just you just (laughs) wrecked kessler with that last line (laughs) oh i'll live No, it's true. No, it reminds me of the old Chris Rock bit when he's like, he's like, whatever you're into, the other person needs to be into too. He's like, if you're a crackhead, then your girlfriend better be a crackhead too. And yeah, so just yeah, they 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 have found their areas where they're in that Venn diagram where their 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 outlooks overlap, and it seems like they're going to probably be more happy than uh, than most couples. Oh yeah. Just hell, like, heaven help you if you cross their path. Th- there's so much passion in that final shot of them being dri- being driven away with a horse and carriage. I have to imagine the the, the, the carriage driver uh, was just wondering what the fuck was going on back there. But right. I, I think it, it 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 crescendos and it ends right where it should. And mm-hmm. I think of all the ones if I were going to revisit them, this is where I would probably revisit. I would probably want, be most likely to revisit first. I guess it depends Same. when you're if yeah. you're making recommendations and you know that people like want to just like. See some shock value. See some provo- prov- provocation. Obviously, tell them to watch the Beast. They're gonna, they're gonna. It's a, it's a hoot and a half. But man, I, I just, um, I don't know. Maybe it's a sign that I'm getting older and more mature. That the Beast doesn't quite do it for me like it <laughs> may have 15 years ago. <laughs> well, I, I will skeptical. remind everyone that you had only seen the Beast when you said you wanted to do an episode on Valerian Barovchik. <laughs> well, also, for me with this podcast, I love doing the episodes where I'm pretty much a blank slate on a director and get to mm. break some new ground. It just it makes the episodes so much more fun where I'm not just regurgitating ideas that I've already kind of been rehearsing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it kind of keeps my cinephilia alive and growing. And so whenever I see a body of work that's largely intact that I know very little about, especially if it deals with animation and bestiality and all sorts of crazy things, I'm like, all right, of course, <laughs> this is a, a perfect topic to go on a kind of an exploratory journey. Not every single exploratory journey is always going to be totally satisfying, but I definitely lean towards episodes where I'm venturing into the unknown. It's always fun to do like a crash course episode where it's like, I have like a vague idea and then, you know, by the end you're like, oh, like maybe I'm not an expert, but I I feel like I learned so much along the way and talking to people you could have worked through certain ideas. So Mm -hmm. like who did Sweet Movie? Sweet Movie is another depraved movie I've never seen, Um, but Akaveev, yeah. Yeah, like that's another person I'm like, all right, sweet movies, no, this notorious movie, and it's totally scandalous, and I know nothing about it apart from the fact that like, I, I like movies that make people outraged. If people are outraged and there's something there, and that's, that's fun and interesting to me, so I, at some point I will do an episode about sweet movie and some of the other directors' movies, but I know absolutely zero about their career apart from the fact that they sparked controversy. Well, I'm curious, James, you watched uh, Emmanuel 5, right? Oh, I've seen the juicy bits on Mr. Skin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask if, if like, you saw any of like Barovchek in it, or if it just felt like somebody on autopilot, or if you well, just watched I, certain I scenes, I don't know those, if... 
Well, Monique Gabrielle is one of my mm-hmm. all-time favorite kind of softcore starlets. She was in like Bachelor Party, and she's like in Deathstalker Two, and just anytime you needed uh, an astonishingly beautiful two. girl to show their boobs <laughs> in the 1980s and early 90s, she was your go-to kind of 80s physique. And so I naturally bumped into Emmanuel Five years ago when I first was kind of exploring her entire filmography. So I think of it as a, a it's a Monique Gabrielle vehicle, but I haven't seen enough of it to know if it's got anything going on like Story of Sin. Okay, like I've seen, like I, after we got into this, I realized I'd seen maybe a little bit more than I had thought. Like um, Behind Covenant Walls, I'd seen in university. I used to have like movie nights where I'd show weird. Uh, weird stuff like Alice in Wonderland, the musical porno or um, (laughs) like that, that sort of thing, you know, to friends. And um, one of the films we watched was Behind Covenant Walls, which I don't remember super well because I I don't remember it being that kind of entertaining. It was just sort of like slow and, you know, maybe there's like sort of an anti-Catholic message, but like, you know, that felt much more in the vein of uh, maybe like a Jess Franco or Jean Roland kind of a thing. So Borovchek, he covered so much territory, and it's so kind of weird how, like, from film to film, it seems like his peers and his, uh, like, where he fits in with the rest of film kind of shifts that I, I think, like, it's it's tough, like you said, to pin him down, but he's, he's definitely an interesting filmmaker, and I think um, overlooked as an artist, for sure. Yeah, and it's one of the things where... If this podcast is going to play a role in anything, helping people dust off and rediscover obscure filmmakers, I feel like you're always doing, you're always making the right call when you're running a podcast about film and you're helping people discover these hidden treasure troves because they're the the shelves are breaking under the weight of all the essays about why Casablanca kicks ass. And I agree, Casablanca fucking rules. I've seen it a hundred million times, and I'll watch it a hundred million more times and love it every single time I do. But Michael Cartese in that film, his reputation is intact and it's safe. And it's guys like Valerian Borovchik who need a little extra assistance and a little extra kind of piggyback and that sort of thing. So I always have a blast um, trying to – because you never – like when you're – studying these obscure directors every once in a while you'll come across some gem that you're like oh my god like this this movie speaks to me in ways that i've never been spoken to before and that's part of the fun of outrageous cinema is finding these these scenes that are completely utterly forbidden to mainstream entertainment but you never quite know what you're going to discover on these strange forbidden journeys so i i I had a blast preparing for this episode prior to doing this I'd only really seen Immoral Tales yet I had owned The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne for years and always been like oh I should probably put that on I should probably put that on so James (laughs) thank you for for making me finally watch one of my uh, long neglected Blu-rays and I had a blast watching it I really Mm -hmm. feel like I've discovered an artistic voice that I otherwise would not have really known about and I need to go out and buy because there are Blu-ray collections of his short films uh, Blanche is out there, Goto is out there so there, there is so much more for me to discover here and there is so little written about him As like if when I was trying to do preparation you really really have to dig really hard which means that it is a very unearthed topic so I hope that this kind of inspires other people to kind of go down the rabbit hole because you go in thinking that you're going to get a bunch of funny smut uh, that, that <laughs> toes the line between art and porn, and you you really get something so much more from it. So did, did you know that he tried to make a sequel to The Beast? Oh God! What? Called uh, Motherhood, uh, where she gives birth to a boy who turns into a seal. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Quick, quick interruption, Dave, just on the topic of you having DVDs that you haven't watched, mm-hmm. when are you going to treat us to a series of videos where you just film yourself trying to decide what to watch? Because I feel like on a <laughs> nightly basis, when you've, you're sleep-deprived, maybe you've had a couple beers, and you had this desperate itch and need to be stimulated by a wonderful, beautiful movie, but it seems like sometimes you get paralyzed or paralysis through over-analysis because you have so many options at your fingertips. Of your DVD and Blu-ray collection, what percentage has not been watched? Oh, man, I'd say at least 30%. And if I were to do oh. something, it'd be like Gene Dealman, uh, a three-hour <laughs> movie of indecision and of, and of moving through through uh, through routine and just staring at Blu-rays and in uninterrupted shots for hours. Um, but it's, I, I think that's part of the fun. That's what we're missing from the, like, the loss of video stores is perusing the aisles and walking around and looking at the spines and looking at the covers. Like, sometimes that, that's part of the, uh, the experience and the fun and then the, the pain of having to finally land on a, a final decision at the exclusion of others. I, I, will, I will kind of go in here and say my introduction to Borovchek came from a video store. I've mentioned it several times on this and probably other podcasts that Viva Video is still a an operating video store just down the street from me. They're fantastic. And one of their, uh, one of their awesome pl- employees there, Dan Santelli, uh, turned to me and my wife and said, you guys want to watch a crazy movie today? <laughs> and made us rent moral tales. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, the video store is alive and well and recommending weirdo movies. That's so as long seedy. As you know where to look for them. <laughs> I love it. I mean, for me, those are the true cinephiles, but people who just who really appreciate the value of outrageous entertainment. And when I look at the current landscape today, and there's it's so much of it's like childproof, like world cinema, where it's like bland PG thirteen disposable nonsense that's designed to be able to play equally well in any territory on the planet. And it's just these are these movies have such short shelf lives. And they come out and they go away and they feel interchangeable. They look alike. They sound alike. And Valerian Borovchik, his movie, whatever my grievances might be against his earlier movies, he makes his own movies his own way and they're unlike any other movies I've ever seen. So just in terms of striking a blow for individuality, unique cinema, etc., I I, I have to admit that I, I am a fan because the older I get, the more I value somebody who's got an individual stamp, an individual take, because it seems like, sadly, that's in very short supply these days, at least when it comes to global mainstream entertainment. I was watching a, a bit of the, the the interview documentary that was on Immoral Tales before we started podcasting. I didn't have time to watch the whole thing, but but he certainly had some harsher words to say about Disney animated films. <laughs> Disney films felt- are more erotic than my films. <laughs> <laughs> but uh- <laughs> Fantasia is pretty erotic. Fantasia has yeah. like you know unicorns with titties and all sorts of weird shit running around. But but he didn't feel like there was too much artistic expression coming in there. He from those movies, he felt that they were pretty safe. I would love to see what he has to say about all these live action rehashes that are coming out of <laughs> Disney films these days. Because talk about flash in the pan, quick buck, a complete uh, template driven drivel. That is what the Lion King and <laughs> Aladdin. Although are. Dumbo underperforms, so perhaps if there's any justice in the universe, there will be fewer. Of these live-action remakes of animated classics. I went to see Dumbo last week. I'm part of the problem. You are part of the problem. Don't see Dumbo. See see the beast. 
<laughs> exactly. That's how, that might, might be that'd be the perfect tagline for this for this podcast. Well, any closing remarks about his career before we start drawing things to a close? The the only thing I'm going to say it's just a joke that I writ, wrote down yesterday from Jekyll uh, from the strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Miss Osborne. Uh, the priests. I, I watched the English language version. Thank you, Martin, for suggesting I watch that because I felt <laughs> like that was the correct way to go. But the priest, his constant comments like he operated on her. How'd she do? She's dead. It's like, <laughs> he sounded like a Waldorf and Statler act from the Muppets. <laughs> just his voice and his constant, like, this is the priest. Don't make jokes like that. But I loved it just the same. My, my one my one little uh, little quip that I wrote down here that I didn't have a chance to really get into. Yeah, as I mentioned before, my notes on these movies are so fucking juvenile and just so, it's like, oh my God, like, she's hot. Oh my God, perfect ass, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So yeah, my, my notes don't really contribute much to um, a deeper understanding of what these movies have, have to offer. But Kessler, any final words on Borovchik? Uh, just a quote from Story of Sin. I'm not a slut, but I may become one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. And she was so defiant when she said it as well. I, yeah, her, her dad's what, What's wrong with that? I'm like... Maybe I'm not a pervert, but what what if I am? So what? I, I feel yeah. like that's kind of the attitude behind a lot of these films, which I, I yeah, really admire. I'm a big admire. fan of own, owning who you are, owning what, yeah. what you're into, and if the world wants to frown upon them, they can all go fuck themselves. Debauchery so, yeah. seems like a truer way to virtue than ignorance, so there you have it. Agreed. I, mean, I guess between the choice of complete total naivete or just getting utterly mired in the filth of depravity, I think it's. I'd much rather have the, uh, the insider's perspective as opposed to being from like the outside looking in, but... Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and bring this sucker in for a safe landing. So we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down some Valerian Borovchik films. Uh, I can guarantee you, whether you love them or hate them, you will not forget them. So there's you got that going for you. I'm going to put on Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Osborne right now. I'm, I'm going to go right back into that. Excellent. And uh, also, please consider giving us a rating review on iTunes. It's always very helpful to the podcast. And if you want to see some video content, you can always see my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where I cover mostly television, but also some flicks as well. But can't thank you enough for listening to the podcast. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.